The year is 1987. Apple has released the first Macintosh and is gearing up to release the Macintosh 2. Acorn is putting the finishing touches on its Acorn Archimedes, a computer very close to our hearts at Octal FM, as it's what we both played Elite on. And in this episode of Octal FM, we're going to discuss some of the games that were released around the world in that year, 1987. Hello and welcome to another episode of Octal FM. I'm Gelada. And I'm Zephyr. And we're back with our recurring series, which is going to take us a long time to get through. That's um, right, yeah. Where we look at games from a particular year. Uh, and we started all the way back with 1985. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're now on 1987. So yeah taking us a long time and yeah we're going to discuss like games that are quite important from the time sort of you know going back in time a little bit taking a trip down not really memory lane because these are a little bit before us but uh, a historian's look at some of the influential games from the time Hmm. not in any particular order i think we're actually going to accidentally talk about them in date date release order Hmm. and we're looking at like first release of games right because this is still the time right when games had big gaps between you know maybe like japanese release and western release or whatever i think they're like two years apart yeah or like games where they like never get released until they're like remade or something in the you know in in modern yeah there's actually a game on this list that's literally never been released outside japan right exactly so Um, (laughs) and it's also not necessarily a full comprehensive list either oh no there's quite a lot of honorable mentions which a lot of people would say well we definitely should have talked about them instead but like we can only talk about so many and these are ones that we have maybe a stronger feeling towards so Mm. uh, yeah if you do find that we've missed out any games in particular like i missed out one that that you made some notes about actually that mm. I didn't even realize was, was out in 1987 yep. and do get in contact with us and let us know. Um, and we can maybe do like a little addendum section or something on the soundbite mm. for prior to the next one from 1988. Yeah, exactly. How excited were you to talk about metal gear in this episode? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it was pretty cool. I was looking through the, the list of games from 1987. I was like, oh, okay, what's came out this year? What, what can I talk about? I was like, oh my God, Metal Gear? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the original Metal Gear came out in June of 1987. And it was originally just on the MSX2, which was like a personal computer, uh, only available in Japan, I believe. Right. It was subsequently released on lots of other systems like things like ms-dos commodore 64 plenty of other sort of japanese uh, yeah. like pc engine type things yeah this is really of the era of that kind of thing isn't it you know lots of home consoles there was also the port onto the famicom and the nes was that rubbish was it that was it yeah it was that, terrible yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is why i didn't include it straight away in whatever systems it was available on because 
even the Japanese version was pretty terrible. Mm. But the English version was like just abysmal mm. because not only did it have to be cut down in content and like, you know, graphics massively reduced in quality and all the rest of it. Yeah. But the translation work was atrocious, but we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was developed by Konami. Um, this was before that they was still not evil mm-hmm. quite. Um, <laughs> and we talked about Konami in the previous the previous episode, actually, because they also did... What did we talk about last time? Gradius, I think we talked about mm, last time, I didn't we? So, yeah. yeah. Uh, but they also did Gradius, they did Contra, uh, they did Silent Hill games, did Metal Gear games, and now they're known for Pachinko games. Mm. It was also published by them as well, because this is sort of... In Japan, especially at this point, there was very much still a case of the company that made it released it. Yeah, There wasn't definitely. so much a publishing element in J- Japanese game space just yet, unlike yeah. there was, say, in the Western game space. Particularly with, like, PC games, like, you know, your... your bedroom coders and stuff with them yeah. like use a publisher to cut co- to to get it out to the kind public explains i guess maybe why there were a lot of like regional release games you know because if you're a publisher and the developer you know you've got a lot of work to do if you're also yeah. going to publish in like across the world and like that's a lot of effort makes sense when you're not necessarily looking that much effort or necessarily looking to invest that much money because mm-hmm. obviously that's going to cost you a lot more money to get those games shipped around the world yeah and this was very much the the first notable game for Hideo Kojima. Um, he had worked mm. on some other things beforehand. Most mostly, I think it was like Penguin World or Penguin <laughs> Adventure or something like that. Excellent. <laughs> Bit of a jump from that to, to another <laughs> Yeah, game. yeah, it's basically the same. Um, but we've talked about him many times in the past when we've talked about um, Death Stranding. So yes. we, won't, we won't focus too much on Mr. Kojima this time. And I think the, the most notable thing for it is the fact that it was pretty much the birth of the self-genre. Because up until this point, there were were certain games where stealth was an option, uh, or maybe, like, stealth was part of the story. Like, I'm sure there'd been sort of, like, you know, point-and-click adventure games and sort of, like, those sort of more... Not rudimentary, I suppose, but sort of less action-based gameplay where, you know, you would stealth around or hide from things. But this was very much built into the gameplay itself, which, for the game that it was, it was like a top-down, like, 2D little game where you moved you moved your character around on the screen. Mm-hmm. And you weren't encouraged to, to, to engage with the enemy too often because you had a very limited amount of resources in terms of both health and ammunition and stuff like that. And you were encouraged to stay away and to, to stealth around engagements. Um, it was a little bit clunky, obviously, uh, at first, but... The fact that the enemy still had like a line of sight on you effectively is is really impressive. And although the line of sight really was just a line in four directions from the point of view of the, the character model that represented them, like a guard or something, it was still very unique for the time. Mm. I don't think many other games had really done anything like this beforehand at this point, because it's also always at this point they'd focused on action. You know, you'd shoot yeah. the dude rather than sneak past the dude. <laughs> I guess that's kind of arcade's influence, isn't it? You know, like, stealth is not necessarily going to be super suited to a high, sort of high-energy um, arcade environment. You you want that action style. Yeah, makes sense, I suppose. But one of the reasons of this was that they wanted to try and keep the game's uh, memory consumption fairly low to have other things on the cart. Right. And as a result, if you had less guards but made it so that getting past them was tougher you could save on memory right um so that was one of the reasons behind having stealth to begin with so even though it was a feature within the game and sort of like part of the story of like sneaking into like a military base or whatever 
it it was also a technical limitation right. that then became its own genre within the industry. I mean, mm-hmm. how many games now include full-on stealth sections, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the same time as being the birth of the stealth genre, it was also the, the birth of the Metal Gear right. series, you know? It's crazy to think that this has now spanned four decades, mm-hmm. you know? There's been at least six mainline entries into the game and a lot of other spin-offs and smallest titles and stuff like that over the years. And it's become fairly unfairly known for its uh, cutscenes, you know, and its long-lasting yeah. uh, cinematics. Yeah. But again, like, this was one of the earlier games that sort of took that. Like, even in this one, there was extended lengths of dialogue. Right. Now, that wasn't necessarily uncommon, because by this point you had games like Dragon Quest and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But this was an action game. You know, even though it was a stealth game, it was still an action game. It wasn't an RPG. And so having sort of like, you know, a full-on cinematic discussion as it were, within the game's action was was quite different, you know? And it was also just the beginning of a lot of tropes for the series as well. Like, they started using a lot of the same things that would carry on using for literally the rest of the the game series up until, like, 2016 when Metal Gear Solid V came out. Things like the Codex, for example, the entire sequence at the beginning of the game where in the MSX version you sneak in from underwater is basically reused in the second Metal Gear game (laughs) and in Metal Gear Solid. Mm. So... It's interesting how they kind of didn't want to make a different game. They just kind of wanted to re-update the ideas they'd had from like 1987 when they made the when they, when they made the subsequent games in the series, which I think is pretty interesting. It's it is interesting because it's been a long time, but they're still kind of like yeah making use of those of those things that were invented right at the beginning. And one of the only reasons, in fact, that this game got a sequel initially was that it wasn't because it didn't sell well; it sold pretty well. Was just because Kojima specifically wanted to kind of make the game how he wants to make it, and then Metal Gear, Metal Gear Two, sorry, was basically the same game but like done how he wanted to do it with less technical limitations. Director's on cut. It. Yeah. Kind of, yeah, but it was its own thing. Like, it was its mm-hmm. own standalone game, but very much a, a original game plus, effectively. Mm. One of the other things that kind of the game is very well known for is it's a terrible adaptation to the NES, like we mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. How the NES had a lot less power than the MSX2 did, and as a result, they had to sort of downgrade a lot of the graphics, they had to cut out a lot of the codec conversations, they had to simplify a lot of the um, stealth gameplay elements mm. of things and make it a lot more simplified than it already was. Yeah. And then to make matters even worse, the translation into English was, like, horrendous. <laughs> like, they didn't try and keep it as sort of, like, this stealth, like, mm. military conspiracy-style story. They just turned it into kind of a normal, like, dude shoot bad guys until right. they blow up sort of so thing. So they actually, like, cha- adapted the story kind of thing. Very much so. And they cut out a lot of the dialogue. Mm. They they changed the thing. But not even that, but the translation was horrendous. Like, mm. it was sort of like um, Zero Wing bad. Like, right, yeah, yeah. The yeah. first line that you hear once you actually arrive on scene is a guard saying, I feel asleep. <laughs> and then he falls, <laughs> proceeds to fall asleep. You know? Amazing. So... This is a bit of a rocky start for Metal Gear, and most people in the West didn't really know what Metal Gear was until Metal Gear Solid on the PlayStation. Yeah, definitely. Um, But the birth of the series starts here, and I think it's definitely worth talking about nonetheless. Mm. Yeah, and another birth of a a series, which when you you mentioned this, I didn't realise that it goes back this far at all. But yeah, another like Japanese long-standing series is... Megami Tensei, right? And that started Mm -hmm. also in 1987. 
this was before there really was sort of like an understanding of what the boundaries were between video games and other media at this point really right. like videos weren't necessarily their own media mm. because this was originally adapted from a uh, a novel like a right. book a series of books and then it was made into sort of like a, a short 20 minute long like anime episode mm-hmm. and then it was made into a video game it's like the video game was almost an afterthought as part of like a marketing slash like uh material publishing idea like, right um but then it ended up spawning its entire own franchise as a result and the video game was very much at the core the center of that um it was back in 1987 as we said in september um and again like i think almost all the games on this list actually are it was famicom it was yep. it was nes less noticeable games from the west in this instance i think yeah, the the metal gear was probably the only game that wasn't really on the famicom primarily mm-hmm. um in this instance uh and this was one of the games that we mentioned at the beginning that was never released outside japan ever mm-hmm. yeah um it is still yet to have a, an official english release which given the series is popularity now, now as a yeah. result of the popularity and success of the persona games is pretty surprising actually mm-hmm. yeah i would have thought maybe like they'd have done something like they did with the for example like metal gear how that was bundled into like a special edition yeah of one of the games and like you can play like a official version of the original game like within the disc or something i mean never say never right we've just had an announcement about famicom detective club being that's um, true yeah being re-released so like, and that was a very similar sort of era as well yeah, very exactly. similar style of game too but this was like we said the beginning of the the team and the franchise that makes the megami tensai games mm. uh which are we, we are best known for the persona games now yeah but have had absolutely so many entries into this series and even back then the same sort of people have been working on it from from a very early point uh koji okada was one of the directors of the original games and he was doing like stuff to do with atlas and these games from since like 2004 i think so for like nearly 20 years (laughs) you know he was working on this series even before it became properly popular in the west Mm -hmm. Uh, and the original author of the original novels aya nishitani i don't know if he did anything else other than that but the original novels were sort of like pretty pretty weird pretty unique you know which i guess is why it, it, they stood out to, to make a, a game about as well make like a me- media franchise around right i mean the even the games now the sort of modern persona series are a bit weird right none of these games have ever been sort of middle of the road no definitely not they're always leaning into one element or another pretty hard yeah they're quite sort of artistic very stylized and even even then right and that's actually a really good point to to go focus on there is the stylization of it the games have a very unique look to them like the originals had that really 80s anime aesthetic to it mm-hmm. uh, like all the character art by uh, i might mispronounce this hiroyuki kitazume i think that's it mm. um it is really well realized in like a, this 8-bit form on like, the famicom which was not a particularly powerful system no. for displaying like detailed artworks yeah. but it, it comes across very strongly and it still does even now like even in the modern games like you can still see the elements of it, particularly sort of in the monsters, the you know the shadows, the demons, whatever you want to call them. Like 
uh, in the more supernatural elements of the game. They, they all still have a very similar vibe to it from even back here from 1987. Right. And I think that's really interesting how despite the different games, despite the different genres almost within these games as well, they've managed to maintain some level of cohesion from the mm. art style, despite the fact how art style has changed throughout the games as well. Because I mean, that's one of the things that the game series is known for so well is, is how kind of crazy everything can look. Mm. The It's very kind of stylized in its, you know, setting and, and, and artwork and so on and so forth. But as an actual game, was it, it was a fairly, it was more of a standard kind of RPG, right? It was like a mm. dungeon crawlery kind of game, right? Yes. Yeah, that's it. It was, yeah. it's kind of weird, right? Because it, it was almost more interesting for what it looked like rather than how it played. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I could definitely see that if you ran this a hundred times in alternate universes, like more times than not, the game probably wouldn't have done anything other than this and maybe like one sequel and nothing else ever sort of thing. I think right. it was just sort of luck that it spawned some more successful sequels that then sort of mm. did better because the gameplay itself was pretty bland, really. Like right. the original team very much openly admitted that they were inspired by the game Wizardry mm -hmm. and how you had that sort of first person Dungeons and Dragons style, like dungeon crawler, yeah. where you would like face enemies in a first person position, sort of like a 3D-esque maze. And you know the drill. Like if you ever saw like the 3D... Uh, May screensaver, back yeah, on old Windows ninety five. Oh, yeah. you know exactly what it looks like. That kind like. of style. It's interesting because Wizardry is Western, right? Like that's, yes, that's a yeah. Western game. Yeah. And they actually struggled to make it their own game in a lot of ways. Like they had the the setting with the Megami Tensei, the Digital Devil Saga story, but they didn't really have their own like game mechanics. They necessarily wanted to do mm. but they did manage something at least anyway and that was with the idea of having the demons be right. summonable hence the name the digital devil saga but making that into an ability where you could negotiate with them and make them come over to your side and to kind of work for mm. you that's and why it's not in the west right because it's too religious i mean i imagine that's a very big part of it i mean it was mm. released on the famicom which means it was nintendo and nintendo of america in the 80s and 90s was like Basically, if it had any religious in it, the slightest, it didn't get made or it got heavily censored. Yeah. And I imagine like yeah. censoring like a cross out of like Zelda or something was probably not that difficult. Trying to censor right. something like this where the whole game is literally about summoning demons <laughs> is probably impossible. Yeah, you'd be making yeah. a new game. In fact, right? <laughs> that's something we can maybe talk about in the future where they, they did. I don't remember which one it is. I want to say it was like Shin Megami Tensei 2. I don't know whichever one it was where they literally did make a new game. Um, they, they basically just right. took this thing and just stripped it down to its barest part and made a whole new game on top of it. We can talk about that in the future. Yeah. But yeah, other than that, the game was relatively un, unassuming. It just had this really strong stylized look to it, as you say. And I think that just lasted the test of time. A game also from 1987 that in some ways, like, didn't stand the test of time but then mm. now has like i feel like it's sort of a game that kind of like fell out of understanding and then has kind of come back mm. almost in a weird way and mm. that's zelda 2 the adventure of link Um, which was also in 1987. And actually, the first Zelda game also came out in the US in 1987. But we'll, Yeah, we'll this was when there was that huge difference in release schedules. Like, yeah. And that's kind of, kind of why the, the first two Zelda games came out on the disc system in Japan, but then came out on right. the yeah, NES yeah. In, in the West. Yeah. Yeah, and, 
you probably know a little bit about Zelda 2, or maybe even a lot about Zelda 2. Um, it was obviously, it was made by um, Nintendo EAD, right? Like the more mainstreamy yeah, branch of they made Mario, they made Zelda, they made all the big name right. titles that you you know of. Right. And Miyamoto was on this one as well, producing this. Um, and... Who else was who else was notable? So some other notable people too. were uh, Tadashi Sugiyama, who has worked on a lot of the big name titles and in Nintendo's history, um, big titles such mm. as Mario Kart, F Zero, and Wind Waker. Um, so he's worked on mm. lots of things. He just doesn't necessarily have that sort of star power name as something like Miyamoto does, for example. Mm. Um, and you also had Takeshi Tezuka working on this, but as a writer, weirdly enough, whereas he's mostly known for doing mm. directing work on games. Right. Um, but yeah, like these are some of the earlier games of this this uh, development side of Nintendo. But these mm. names would go on to make like countless big titles for the company like 20 30 years on mm. you know these are the, these yeah. are very much now the nintendo veterans yeah and the thing that i think everyone knows about zelda 2 is that it's very different to the first game and also very different to then the game after it in the sense that you had a lot of side scrolling and jumping and you know and a lot of more traditional mm. kind of rpg elements as well and and it was received really well originally um it's like it sold a lot of copies and it was reviewed very well what's interesting is when it was kind of started to be re-released like there was a gba version um and like that kind of thing it 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 like reviewed worse Mm. as time went on like people really kind of like I, kind I of guess, like to hate it almost. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's because of maybe a little bit of Link to the Past and also like, you know, as you start to see things mm. like Ocarina of Time and Link's Awakening and things like that, like it really stands out. And so it sort of ended up being considered worse than it is. And I think now people are like, oh, actually, okay, maybe it was, maybe we were right all along and it was actually pretty good. I think it was actually one of the early examples of a game being done by like the internet reviewer community. Like mm. I think I think it was one of the sort of earlier games that something like AVGN did, for example, right? Mm. Where it was sort of funny to rag on these games like this and Simon's Quest, which is actually an honorable mention from this year, Castlevania 2 mm. Simon's Quest. They were both very different from their original like core games of zelda and castlevania Mm. for example but because they were so different it was sort of easy to kind of like rag on them and criticize them very strongly because they weren't what people wanted and like you say i think over time when we've moved away from the being fun cool to sort of rag on them to now going actually they were pretty good yeah there's definitely yeah there's definitely a lot of rough edges but things that even now we're only just seeing coming back into zelda games like sort of like rpg like num like stats yeah you know stat based stuff is now in breath of the wild right and people love that but you've not actually seen it since zelda 2 in a way they in this introduced in a way it kind of introduced npcs in the sense that like the first zelda game didn't really have any npcs really Um, no like yeah people who stood still who were basically just signposts <laughs> yeah and like a metered like a proper magic system mm. with like metered magic and different spells like obviously that then became a thing and my one of my favorite like little quirks that i like about zelda 2 is that the names of the towns became the some of the names of the sages yeah. in ocarina of time I so like Saraya really and Garunia cool. and stuff like that i think that's pretty cool i just think one of the things that a lot of people forget is that 
the original Zelda, although it was really big and expansive and you felt like you were exploring mm. it, which a lot of people like to, you know, applaud, which they should because it, it's a very much a new thing from the game in 1986. Mm. Yes. Um, but a lot of people forget that, like, this game introduced the world of Hyrule as a lived-in place. Like, there was yeah. a lot of life going on. There were villages, yeah. there were towns, there were new, interesting things to explore. The world looked different. And because of the two different camera angles, the top-down sort of, like, you know, exploration mm. side of things, and then the more side-scrolling action side of things, you could appreciate the world from different angles. It right. felt like a much larger lived-in world. Definitely, definitely. It's definitely tough to play. Like, oh, for sure. It's, it's very hard. I think the worst thing, I've never got that far through Zelda 2 because when you die, you get put back at the yeah, start. Yeah, for sure. And like, that's completely unforgivable in a game nowadays. This um, is a game where playing it on like the Switch's virtual console is definitely the way to go forward because you can just oh, rewind yeah. it like 20 seconds. Yes, 100%, 100%. But, you know, like it had like actual interesting combat mm. um you know you the combat was challenging it wasn't just a case of like mashing a button or you know the enemies were sort of an interesting thing rather than just like something that gets in the way and hurts you if you touch them yes yeah they actually did interact with you they would chase you down right exactly you would have to attack their weak spots more specifically yeah yeah no for sure it was there was a lot more intricacy to, in in the way in which you interacted with enemies and puzzles and stuff in this mm. one yeah yeah exactly but yeah so you know an important one really like really kind of fleshing out zelda as a as a thing compared to the first you know where you've got the first game and then this really kind of explored some interesting things and then i guess a link to the past sort of combined them i'd in say a way that together. very much solidified what zelda was going to be right. from there on really um, exactly one game that kind of had the opposite in the sense that its sequel was far better received overall not that yeah. it wasn't a great game though was the original Mega Man. yeah uh, right at the end of 1987 They're gonna say that was that was the December of 1987, and it's not that it wasn't popular, but it certainly was outshone by its sequel over the yeah. years. Um, it didn't really sell that well. No, in fact, and it's interesting because Mega Man Two. Did we say it was Mega Man? We were talking about Mega yes, Man. Yes, yeah, we're talking about Mega Man. Um, <laughs> it's funny because Mega Man Two, even now, is the best-selling Mega Man game of all time, mm. and like. I don't know. For me, Mega Man always feels like a B-side star, right? It, like, none of the Mega Man games are that Ooh, successful. Scathing. This is the usual kind of thing I would be saying. But they're not, are they? Oh. Like, okay, fine, Mega Man 2, it sold, you know, a few million copies. But, like, everything else is, like, Ooh. just not done very well. Wow. And there's hundreds of them. Yeah, it's like they've just, like, tried and tried and tried and tried. I think it's it's one of those series where they, they had a a very recognizable mascot with a good selling background so mm. they tried to sort of like milk that and make more yeah. content out of it and in fairness the original games were still still pretty good even by today's standards like yeah the original is pretty tough oh yeah kind of unfairly at times um yeah the way in which the levels are designed is is fun but you can tell this is still using that like arcade design style definitely of, like the classic like yeah drop where you don't know what you're going to be able to see or like surprise platforms that disappear and you have no idea that they're going to disappear and that kind of thing that does improve massively in Mega Man 2 in fairness like Mm -hmm. that now has a much more telegraphed way of training players yeah but in the original game not so much 
Um, but it was a very, it was a fun game. Like I, I feel like there wasn't a great deal of like shooty platformers at this point. Yeah. Uh, like you either had shooting games like, for example, Metal Gear and, and sort of Contra and things like that, or you had yeah. platforming games like yeah. Mario. Yeah. But this sort of tried to meld the two of them together whilst also sort of adding like small screen size puzzles to solve at the same yeah. time. I think it was kind of interesting how it was trying to blend a lot of these elements together. And I think it did it pretty well, all things considered, yeah. really. It's, it feels reasonably tight as well. Like even those early ones, like compared to a lot of games of the era, like it's got a good pace about yes, it, I yeah. think. Um, and yeah, it's you can actually now it's best played in the legacy collection oh, for sure. which actually incorporates a rewind feature yes <laughs> no for sure like there is something to be said about playing a game in this original form like mm. you to maybe appreciate sort of the history of it but if you want to enjoy the game definitely play it in its more modern iterations yeah. like Mega Man's had quite a few re-releases now like you said, i think it's like legacy collection one and two which are the yeah. ones that you can kind of get the most after you bang for your buck where you get like kind of six of the games in the original collections yeah. Yeah, yeah and they've all been updated they all look a lot nicer it's not that they didn't look nice but the especially in one before they sort of smoothed out the art design for for, for the Mega Man games mm. things looked a little bit like out of place some things didn't necessarily gel that well with each other in terms of their art direction and yeah. graphics didn't work all that well sometimes there was a lot of like flickering on the screen of like assets yes. not necessarily i'm sure there's a technical reason for that like in the way in which the memory is loaded from the cartridge yeah, or something very like classic heart like sort of tricky you can tell that they're they're like really pushing the console mm. and they're having to like make it so that things don't display properly. My favorite one actually is like um, in uh, Super Mario Bros. 3 where like the right hand side of the screen is showing you a bit of the tile that's on the left or something. Uh, you know, like when yes. you're like running yeah. along and like the whole of the right screen is like weirdly flickering and it's like some kind of graphical trick that they did to like like make it so that you could load everything that they needed gotcha. and it's like that kind of style of like weird graphical stuff going on <laughs> and you can see them doing this in this 100 percent. like because mm -hmm. it, it for the nes it looks incredible like it's very yeah, bright yeah, very yeah. colorful um yeah. that's actually one of the reasons why Mega Man was blue because blue was one of the most varied color palettes yeah, yeah. you could change for the choose for the nes so it <laughs> there's so many more. things like that aren't there? it's like great Mar and even mario <laughs> i i like how technical limitations sort of gave them reasons to try yeah. and work around them and in a way like modern games don't have that in the same way anymore so you you, you mm. almost like don't have that forced creativity as much anymore mm. but yeah the, the series went on to make so many games and they sometimes stayed within the same sort of genre of like platforming other times they diverged massively yeah things like the legend series like uh on nintendo 64 mm -hmm. for example and you also have things like the battle zone is it battle zone battle connect one of those two where it's like on the game boy advance where you it's sort of like a grid based like turn-based battle system it's it, they're all very different but yeah. Mega Man's very much become a star in his own right of a role. Like, not just these games necessarily, but as a character in the world yeah. itself, you know. He's in Smash. Uh, and the music is fantastic, you know. Like, all the music mm. from Mega Man is infinite, yes. it's infinitely listenable, too. Like, yes. I didn't actually look at who made the music for the game, if it's anyone particularly mm, notable. Sure. But, yeah, the music is, is, is one of those type of musics where you definitely want to hear, like, remixes for, like, rock versions and stuff. Mm. Uh, by fans that's definitely the way to go forward like the music is spot on for that game yeah the uh the final huh, <laughs> game in our list um, so clever. is a is a pretty 
pretty important one, an interesting story, which I think most people know, um, but that's Final Fantasy. Which was also right at the end of 1987 and actually 1990 in North America. Mm -hmm. So, you know, big gap. Um, Was on the NES, like all of these games pretty much. Um, Was developed by Square before they were Square Enix and was published by Nintendo. And I think people know this, right? Like the reason why it's called Final Fantasy is because Square were in dire straits. This was their like last ditch attempt. Also, the guy that made it... Hironobu Sakaguchi. Well done. Um, I'm not. I'm not one no, to no, attempt these Japanese on. names, but I think I did all right. He was going to also quit game development mm. um, if it didn't sell well. They had made a couple of like like before this for the NES specifically. There were games that were good, especially like technically good, but just didn't sell well. No. Things like Rad Racer and 3D Battles of World Runner, mm-hmm. um, like complete unknowns that just didn't sell that well, actually reviewed well. Um, like Rad Racer is considered like one of the best racing games on the NES yeah, and it's stuff like good. that. But like, yeah, just weren't doing well financially. And so Final Fantasy, you know, it's the last game, the last attempt um, to do something. And, and I think it was probably just because they wanted to make something that they wanted to play right because i think they were much like when we talked about digital devil saga mm. they were inspired very heavily by western style rpgs they were they were and also it's interesting because i don't think that square wanted to make an rpg like before final fantasy they hadn't they didn't make an rpg and it was basically dragon quest selling really well mm. that was like okay maybe we should maybe we'll give rpgs a go but as you say they they were inspired a lot by that western style you know dungeons and dragons sort of sort of style of of rpg rather than the kind of establishing you know this sort of early early stages of jrpg what i find kind of interesting is that like when we think of jrpgs now you're actually talking about more classical western style rpgs you know with knights and mages and swords dragons and stuff which is kind of interesting like how jrpgs traditionally didn't include much japanese mythology right yeah it's interesting it's interesting a few things that are interesting about final fantasy i mean there's a lot there's a lot of interesting stuff here i think it's crazy that it was one of the first games to like show you your party Mm. in a fight like if you think about dragon quest it's that and also some other like we've talked about um megami tensei and also um wizardry as well like that like first person style rpg where like the combat you're like looking at the monster that's attacking you um and this was like top down you know you can see your party on one side you can see what you're attacking on the other side you know that obviously became like a huge staple that's just now the default like having the first person perspective is is basically undone anymore yeah only in dragon quest games Mm. really it was hard, like most of these games uh, on this list. You could like pick your party right at the start. Like there were no like specific characters. You you chose your four characters. You chose what classes they were. And, and you, you could also them. choose the, the variations of them. I mean, you could have multiple of the same one too. You could. You could be like, I want to have four thieves or yeah. a white mage. Or four a, white mages. A, yeah, four white mages. <laughs> that would be a challenge. Yeah. And, and, and it introduced some of those early Final Fantasy like concept, you know, things like white mages mm. and like some of the artwork and art style is like you know then continues through things like the sort of non-linearity aspects of it things like 
getting the ship later on in the game mm-hmm. like such a classic sort of thing that you get in every game and you know since then um but like yeah like like those sort of like very very things that are very traditional now um were sort of you know early early things that were explored in final fantasy um i also absolutely love like it's got quite a good like quite a long story quite interesting there's sort of like a you know you defeat the the boss and and save the princess and then the game opens up yes and like yeah, starts yeah. and like it and becomes this sort of big, big i, I genuinely believe game. that that along with a couple other reasons is why it did so well because i think yeah. it really it swerved people like a mm, lot of people were mm. they would have been happy with a more traditional like you know save the princess kill the bad guy you win right but then it was like, oh wait, no, no, now it starts. Wow, that's yeah. And I think it took people a lot by surprise, and that got people talking, which thus right. made people go and buy the game more because this was obviously this was pre-internet, really. So as yeah. a result of it, you it was almost all by world word of mouth and maybe magazines. Yeah. So you would rush out and buy this game. It also has like a hilariously Final Fantasy complicated story about like a time loop. Oh and yeah, for sure. Like you end up fighting chaos itself, which is just like like that's a that's a meme in our house. Like about <laughs> whenever Tony plays a JRPG, and I'm like, have you got to the point where you fight like death itself or chaos itself? Like every the like incarnation every of all JRPG, evil. <laughs> right? And it's exact and it exactly happens here. You know, yeah, I've, you fight I've the final the four boss crystals no, 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 now. No, no, no. Yeah, I've got the four crystals, and now I have to fight the incarnation of some metaphysical thought exactly um <laughs> like that yeah i love that that's like even in the first final fantasy game like that's it's there <laughs> but it was there because at that point it was fresh it was new yes. and that's why people latched onto it and it's why it did so well so yeah you think final fantasy 13 story is complicated oh you yeah, should go and play the original <laughs> i also love like when i was reading up about i've never played the original final fantasy um i don't think i would i think i would throw my controller against the i think it's I one of those it. where just like we were talking with Mega Man, the best way to play it now is very much the the remakes and sort yeah. of the remasters of the game playing the original nes version is probably quite rough I mean, I, some of the bugs when I was reading up are hilarious. Like, I love that the intelligence stat, which is what all the spells are based off, doesn't do anything. So, like, when you level up your mages, like, they don't actually get more powerful because it doesn't work. There's, like, a bug with critical hits where instead of using the critical hit rate, which it shows you, it uses just the index of the weapon in the, like, memory table of weapons so games so weapons that you get at the end have a high critical rate and weapons that you get at the start have a low critical rate (laughs) and you can get like all of these different swords like a dragon sword for which is good against dragons and an ice sword which is good against ice monsters and it doesn't make any difference they're all just ordinary swords (laughs) like like it's meant to but it doesn't like you can tell they were like multiple groups of people within the office who were all making some different elements of the game and they didn't necessarily talk to each other enough to make sure that each thing's kind of incorporated into each other's systems. Well, yeah, because this is like a complicated game, right? Like there's a lot, like we're talking about things with complex stats mm-hmm. and it's we've talked about how big this game is and there's so much to it. Like you like job up don't you like like yes, like you yeah. you're, you're you you change class like yeah. you upgrade your class at the t- towards the end of the game like yeah like thief to ninja and like warrior yeah, to barbarian and stuff like, like that like really like you know there's a lot of mechanics going on here for that for an nes game mm. and these games had to be coded in a very very low level you know you were writing these potentially even in assembly language you know like like instruction by instruction so 
to successfully get all of these things to work and also to notice bugs would have been so difficult yeah. like debugging these and understanding like i'm not surprised that the critical hits like a random thing like critical hits is based off the wrong thing right like how are you how do you spot that yeah. in playtesting you know especially in a company that is in financial and then issues. even if you do spot it like trying to fix it without breaking everything else around right. it is probably just not worth the effort. exactly exactly yeah it might be better to just leave it because it really is building a house yeah. of cards on a rickety table you know Definitely. on a plane <laughs> <laughs> definitely definitely like like you know all of these games were buggy right like like um, but final fantasy exceptionally so <laughs> but it, it's very very charming as a result and mm-hmm. i it's a sh- it's amazing to think how many games had those sort of charms and that potential who maybe just didn't get found and picked up at the time and you know these are the ones that just happened to that you know in some way or another these are the games that kind of stood out for one reason or another that then spawned right. i think almost in fact, all of these spawned long-living series. You know, Metal Gear, uh, Megami Tensei, Zelda, although Zelda was the second game in this series, Mega Man and Final Fantasy, all of them spawned very long-lasting franchises that are most of them are still active today, yeah. you know, in some form or another. So it's cool to see these pretty small, buggy games that just did something kind of unique and interesting like 30-plus years ago. It's also interesting that some of the like quirks of these games due to whatever it might be, right? They were like, it's something from arcades or they were experimenting mm. with something or they were limited by hardware or or it was a bug, right? Have become things that even now are in games today, like 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 they're like central points and established things in video games. And it's like, these were things, these were just like small decisions that someone made in 1987. <laughs> like you were talking about how, how like you have the plateau monsters in Final Fantasy where right. you ended up going to one particular tile within the overworld that happened to have like much stronger monsters just because of the way in which like the the tiling was placed i guess yeah like overlapped into the next area exactly and that's now become a pretty common feature in most jrpgs where like yeah the one particular small area of a, a early game part of the map is surprisingly difficult monsters you know that normally yeah. you wouldn't be able to face for quite a long time so yeah, it's 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 kind of cool, and you can trace that history back a long way and see all the effects it has. You know, yeah, um, the butterfly effect on things like that is wonderful to try and try and yeah. wrap your head around. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, there was loads of honourable mentions as well from this from this year. We've a mentioned a couple that, already. We have a couple that I want to mention as well. Is um, I was really interested when I was doing some research into sort of like the early um, sort of simulation. Uh, open-ended sort of games of this kind of time and mm. a couple that that stood out is um sid meyer's pirates oh right? yeah it was, was 1987 sort of really kind of complex concepts i'm gonna say in, surprisingly complicated game. for, for yeah. a game back then yeah um, actually just re- fairly recently been completely redone uh, on xbox uh, which is That's kind cool. of funny but also it's not a game but maxis was founded in 1987 um to make SimCity, which is at this point two years away. We'll probably, I'm sure we'll talk about it in, when we talk about 1989, yeah, but yeah. sort of interesting, like games starting to like really stretch their legs in terms of power. Like I always think that like simulation games, especially early on, like 
quite a challenge, you know, to make and sort of not something that you would ever do in an arcade, right? You're never going to put well, SimCity in an arcade. If you go back to what we just talked about with Final Fantasy and you think about how many systems were trying to rely on each other right. in a very basic language and then you make a game where you're simulating a city, yeah, you know, like that in itself is just an order of magnitude harder right. to try and make work. Exactly. So I'm really excited to talk about some of the developments of those kinds of games as we go a little bit further on. Um, it's going to be really interesting. Some other more classical games um, that we didn't talk about in any real detail. We had, we had Castlevania 2, Simon's Quest. Yep. Very similar to Zelda 2 in the sense that like it was considered the black sheep of the mm. franchise for a long time. I think most people still probably think similarly for Simon's Quest, whereas they think differently now for Zelda 2. Mm. But again, it, it was doing something quite different to the original game. It was trying to add more RPG elements. It was trying to add more uh, storyline, cinematic NPC elements to the game. Mm. It, it just certainly wasn't balanced out properly, I don't think. There were some bugs, but the bugs weren't the real big problem. The game was just kind of probably imbalanced. And it's definitely the kind of game that you would remake now and it would actually be really, really strong using the same core yeah. ideals, just making life easier, basically, whilst playing it. Right. You had some uh, classic sort of arcade style games as well, moving on to the consoles with Contra and R-Type, yep. which have very long-lasting histories as well. A little bit more niche, like Contra less so, R-Type quite a bit more so, but still very well loved the world over. And they almost sort of like defined their own genres, really. Like, right. you know, when you're talking about like a run and gun game, you, you almost just say, oh, it's, it's Contra. Yeah. It's like Contra, you know, and everyone knows what you mean. You also had Double Dragon, right, which was an arcade game, and that was released in 1987, and that's sort of, like, early... Was that the first of that, like, two-player side-scrolling... Maybe. Kind of I mean, throwing, throwing people around yeah, combat it's, games? Yeah, it, it's certainly the most well-known one, yeah. early on, at least, anyway. There might have been something a little sooner than that, but it definitely popularised the, the beat-em-up genre, right. you know? Um, but you had games like Double Dragon and then later on you had things like Streets of Rage, right, Final exactly. Fight, yeah, uh, yeah. the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles games, you know, all those sort of like side-scrolling beat-em-up games where like you say you're punching dudes and you're throwing them around and using weapons and stuff. Like Golden Axe as well. Maybe was yes. Golden Axe actually out at this point, maybe? I don't know. Uh, maybe maybe Golden Axe was earlier. But yeah, those, th those kind of games. And they were so popular because of how quick and easy they were to play. Like... It's even in the arcade, you could just simply go up, put in your money, and then you'd have a great time with your friend or whatever, because like yeah. it's co-op as well. And It was very much meant for that kind of short, quick pick-up-and-play game style, which was still very prevalent in the game design at this point, because yeah. even though the consoles were still very... were becoming a mainstay at this point, arcades were still very much front and centre for most people when it came to thinking about video games. Right. Exactly. Other big titles that we didn't really mention was Maniac Mansion, which was one of the early LucasArts uh, point-and-click adventure oh, games. Oh, yeah. We talked about some of these in the past ones with things like Space Quest in the previous episode and stuff like that. It, the, this, the history of these sort of like point-and-click story games is wonderful, you know, and the, they all reference each other and they've all played each other's games. And I think it's such a wonderful little like niche culture within it, within its own genre, you know. Mm. Um, and you had Fantasy Star as well, which was like Sega's version of trying to do Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest. Yeah. 
um, which didn't take off quite as well as the others did, especially not in the West. Again, a bit like Dragon Quest, it, it very much was more popular in Japan. But I mean, we've talked about Fancy Star Online in the past when we talked about sort of like our online episode where games went online. And that was sort of what a lot of people in the West probably know Fancy Star for more than anything else. Fancy Star also is kind of sci-fi, right? Like a blend of sci-fi yeah. and not, Yeah, which is which, kind of unique. Yeah. Whereas the other games are very much traditional fantasy like we said earlier and that was 1987 yeah like we said we've almost certainly left out some games that you feel we probably shouldn't have done so do get in contact and let us know what you uh what you think we've missed and we'll we'll address those writing an email right now saying that we missed out leisure suit larry we did but i thought we we, i think we've already talked about that (laughs) in one of the previous episodes i thought many it was more interesting and yeah i mean leisure suit larry was great (laughs) but yeah let us know if uh if you're angry about that or any others that we missed out you can send us an email show at octal.fm or a tweet at octal.fm on twitter or facebook facebook.com forward slash octal.fm yeah get in touch let us know and we will we will add it in a soundbite in the future if there is enough to talk about um next is 1988 which is yep. going to be uh, another interesting year uh actually that was when i was born so see what games came out around the the beginning of the greatest gamer in all time um, <laughs> <laughs> and i'm looking forward to doing that too because like going back and, and looking through some of these games and, and sort of delving the history of some of these uh, kind of classic series of games mm, is super interesting. Like, really interesting doing the research on digital devil saga mm. was absolutely yep fascinating you know yeah i really enjoyed finding out about all the bugs in final fantasy that was my favorite (laughs) from this uh but we look forward to doing that one and we hope you look forward to listening to it but until then i'm saffron and i'm gelada and catch us again for another episode of octal fm very soon